Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. I uh, ro- basically rolled 166 joints for every TD in Dáil Éireann, one for every senator. And I wrote a letter, obviously, explaining that this was National Legalised Cannabis Day. You are now in possession of a joint. You should bring this to your local Garda station because you're breaking the law. I explained yeah. the law and then said that uh, I think you should change this law. One politician left, and I'm not going to mention his name because fair do he got back. He left a message. He goes, you're some whore, man. He goes, we're all smoking them now in the office. Well, I think it's fair to say that Luke Ming Flanagan is not your average politician. He looks different, he acts differently, and since his very first day in politics, he has been tirelessly campaigning for the decriminalisation of cannabis. And because of that, he has often not been taken seriously by other politicians, many of whom have either overlooked him or indeed straight up mocked him. Uh, And I disapprove of mocking people, of course, as you know. But Ming has certainly been taken seriously by voters. Uh, climbing the ranks from local councillor to TD to the MEP position he holds today. We covered all sorts of topics in our chat. How and why he smokes cannabis, what laws around it he would like to see changed, his life in politics and what he thinks of my impressions of him. There are days where inexplicably for me, I get up, the sun is shining, everything in life is going well. But you know what? I don't feel good. And sometimes... Some days I would get 20 times more done if I use cannabis on those days than if I didn't. You could get a criminal record, the equivalent of being a paedophile for possession of cannabis. From the point of view of working with children, getting guard clearance, travelling anywhere around the world. And if you honestly fill in a job application form with a criminal record for possession of cannabis, you can forget about it. Ming, I was one of the senators that you sent one of those lovely pieces of work to in 2001. Do you remember when you did that? I do, yeah. You described it as being of the consistency of dried cabbage. You might be familiar with Ming from political TV and radio shows and various other media, but I think you're going to hear a different side to him in this chat. And there's also been lots of excitement on the Mario Rosenstock podcast hotline after I dropped the news earlier that Ming Flanagan would be on and that he was coming on the show. We've been getting all sorts from his colleagues, past and present, in politics and beyond. Hi, you've reached the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Please leave a message. Hello, Mario. This is uh, Pascal Donahue here. And I'm really looking forward um, to your political interview with Ming Flanagan and I'm here with Leo Hi. the Taoiseach Hi Leo uh, In preparation we are enjoying a small spliffaroonie This is good shit Pascal Now I know where you get all your ideas Ming Any idea where the Doritos are Pascal <laughs> It's in the fridge Leo Okay thanks Here have a go at this will you This stuff is great Yeah give us a blast out yeah. of that Go on Bob, the duchy on the left-hand side. Thanks, Mario. Thanks, Ming. Mario, it's Mick Wallace here and Claire Daly. Hi, Ming. I'm looking forward to hearing you talking all about how we jumped over the fence at Shannon to stop all them Americans. Imperialist bastards! We stood up to them, didn't we, Ming? We changed the world. Fuck the police! Shut up, Mick, will you? Ming, my good friend, Nigel Farage, yeah? Oh, by golly. You know what? 
I always thought the biggest buzz I ever had was drinking pints of Bishop's Finger. But now, wow, that little package you sent me, that ganja, whoa, whoopity-doo-da-day. Loved the skunk, my friend, and the easy cheesy. Ha, I was off my tits. I was so high, I nearly voted for increased European integration. Wow, toodaloo, more of the same, please, squire. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good image, actually. Leo and Pascal having a little bit of a ganja party there. So, OK, let's get straight across to the man himself, Luke Ming Flanagan. So what's the story with the name Ming? I had to ask him that right off the bat. I was interested in uh, running for election and I thought to myself, uh, no disrespect to my family name. In Roscommon, there, there was a habit of going for catchy names like Doherty or Layden when you were voting for people. And I worked out at a very early age that... Uh, Name recognition is vitally important in Irish politics. So um, a bit like um, a bit like going fishing uh, with a worm on the hook. You don't put the worm on the hook because you want to eat it. You, you use it to catch the fish. So Ming serves the same purpose as, as the worm. So like Sean Dublin Bay Loftus or something like that. Yeah, there was there was actually um, uh, there was um, there was another person when I originally uh, ran on the ballot paper with um, uh, a nickname, Paul Bonin O'Fuil, who was famous for um, wearing a Bonin sweater, I think, in the uh, Shannon. But it's actually in the on that ballot paper at the time. You use every every advantage you can. There were three candidates in the first election that I ran in who actually changed their name to get their name further up the ballot paper. Yeah. Uh, Bonnie Nofwil insisted Bonnie was his name, so he'd be B. And uh, uh, Frank Fahey uh, did something as well. And uh, I had my name down as A. Dot Ming. But what does Ming mean? I had an idea at one stage, uh, rather tongue-in-cheek. Came up with it one night, this idea at a party. Maybe I might run for election. And if I run for election, I'll call myself Ming the Merciless. And I'll have one policy. And that is, if you elect me, I will free Flash Gordon. So that's where um, uh, all amazing ideas start with uh, very little uh, daft ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And um, when you first came onto my, my radar, Ming, um we initially knew you as a man called Ming the Merciless and that you were in the doll and that you wanted to legalize cannabis. And I think we then heard a story. Um, I mean, uh, Lorraine Higgins, for example, um, other politicians used to say sort of slightly derisory things about you. Like a Senator Lorraine Higgins said, why waste your vote on a stoner who would have no influence, has delivered nothing as a TD and is effectively a soapbox. Labour will be part of the largest group in Parliament. In saying that, I wish him well. So uh, that's a, a typical sort of Irish politician's reaction. Yeah, it is. And and like uh, the question was, what, what could you achieve in European politics? And uh, to be quite honest, at the time, I wasn't sure exactly what you could do from the point of view of achieving something. Would uh, it be just a case of I'd be an agitator and a noise over there? But uh, I have to say the good news is I have met cooperation. I have had amendments passed that I never thought would be passed. And uh, not just for me, I'm not saying, oh, vote for me, you can do this. But actually, MEPs can actually achieve something. Right. This is a very interesting thing. I also had Maria Walsh on the podcast and um, she was explaining to me um, the inner workings of, of the parliament, which I found um, quite interesting. And I might um, go down that line with you. But I just wanted, I wanted to talk to you about your passion for cannabis and cannabis like legalization um ming and um it's something i've never it's something i don't really know that much about um 
And I'd like you to kind of explain it to me in in simple terms, really, where your passion for this subject came about, uh, where we are at the moment regarding that issue and where you think we could end up going with this issue. Well, my passion came from uh, from the fact that I've seen uh, friends of mine I think the well-trotted out phrase, otherwise law-abiding citizens, coming into conflict uh, with the guards, something they'd never done in their lives previously, never had any problems, but all of a sudden they became a target. And that's not because the guards were trying to be bad, as some of them are, but in general, they were doing it because that was the law. And uh, I also um, use cannabis. Actually, we started using cannabis when I was about uh, 18 or 19 years of mm. age. And all of a sudden, I was in a world where I too was a criminal, even though I couldn't really see why. So I'd always been in the view that um, uh, if you want to change something, you put your name on the ballot paper. And uh, that, along with uh, other things that I was interested in, such as uh, all my brothers and sisters having to leave and go to England and everyone else in my town, I just saw it as another thing uh, that if I was to run for election, I would campaign on and talk about. And, and why, and why yeah. did you start smoking yourself? I mean, you say you start smoking at 18 or 19. Was it a social thing that you did, like, the, like some other people might smoke or have a pint? Or did you find it was a more solitary thing? And did you know, did you know that you wanted to do it before you do it? Or was it just a little experiment? Yeah, it was, uh, I had, uh, like people go on about gateway drugs, if there is such a thing, and um, uh, I had drank alcohol when I was about uh, 15, and uh, I had experienced what it was like to be in a slightly different state of mind, and mm. obviously I was curious about that, and uh, I'd heard about uh, cannabis, uh, there wasn't much of it around Castlery, I bet you there was loads of it, but I didn't know about <laughs> it, and when I went to, I was actually in my second year in college, before I tried it. And you're reminding me now about my mindset at the time and how the propaganda did actually work. Um, uh, I was afraid to go near it because uh, I thought I'd end up uh, becoming a heroin addict because that's what everyone told me. So I, I tried it out of curiosity. I enjoyed it. I liked how it made me feel. People have a very individual response uh, and sort of um, uh, a connection with it. So what, what, what was it the way you feel? Felt. Well, I think it's it's it, it's very it's a very important to look at the actual question. How did it make me feel? And you you've already hit on it. It makes everyone feel different. In the same way mm. as uh, some people drink gin and they can't stop crying. Some people have mm. a great time on it. Mm. And for me, I had a positive experience. And for me, looking back, and it doesn't help everyone, but for me, I I would have suffered from depression. Still, uh, would suffer from uh, depression. And it helped me in that sense. What I found frustrating about it was, though, that you didn't know from one piece of cannabis, one bit of grass, one bit of hash to the next, what sort of impact it was having on you because you hadn't a clue what type of grass or hash it was. So through using it, I thought to myself, like whatever dangers there might be in it, or however good or bad for you it is, the lack of information is definitely not a good thing the, because there's no regulation. And the idea that you could you could get a criminal record, the equivalent of, let, let's face facts, the equivalent of being a paedophile if you mm. have a criminal record for possession of cannabis. From the point of view of uh, working with children, from the point of view of working with the sporting club, getting guard the clearance, from the point of view of travelling anywhere around the world, and from the point of view of 
if you honestly fill in a job application form with a, a with a criminal record for possession of cannabis, you can forget about it. So all of those things made me think, OK, I had a good experience on it. I had a variable experience because I didn't really know all the time what I was smoking. Mm. And I thought to myself, this is kind of going to have to change. So and you mentioned the current state situation and where we are now with the Citizens Assembly and Obviously, it isn't only about cannabis, but initially I would have been a bit worried. No more than you are, you're, you're, this is really important for me. Uh, I'd like to see a change in the law on drugs, so I'd like for it to be done well. So there was a little bit of concern initially about the expert group. Obviously, you can claim this person is biased or that person is biased. But now that it has started, and now that I've listened to uh, many of the 99 uh, people who were randomly chosen, I would be more confident about it than I originally would, would and more optimistic that we are heading towards a recommendation from this committee that we need to move towards a more health-based approach and uh, towards decriminalization. And I would hope uh, for certain drugs uh, to legalization. So um, there's never been, like I've been at this talking about this a long time, haven't talked about it a lot for, for quite a while because I mean, what's the point in saying the same thing over and over again? But now it is ripe for change, whether it be through this assembly, whether it be through the setting up, uh, I'm involved in it, a, par a group in the European Parliament, members from five different groups, whether it be all the changes in the law all around Europe, it's already happened in Malta, it's going to happen most importantly in Germany, it's happened in many of the United St in the States in the United States. So. It's a ripe environment politically for it now. And uh, I, I can see change happening uh, fairly uh, rapidly. And I'd be very hopeful. And uh, it should give me hope that other things that never seem to change might actually change. And just from, let's say, from a financial point of view, from the point of view of resources to help people who do have problems with drugs, if you look at Colorado, very similar population to Ireland, they take every year on average about 400 million euros in tax. So for me, it's a question of, do we give the money to the Kinahans or do we give it to the schools? For me, it's a clear it's a clear and obvious choice what we should do. Yeah, okay, uh, good answer. Listen, Ming, you said that it helped you with your depression. It yeah. helped me, it, well, I put it like this. For me, it helped me at a time when I found it difficult to regulate my moods. And I say for me, because, you know, that's how it affected me. I know people who I know people really well who smoke, who have smoked cannabis. And I would tell them afterwards, don't smoke cannabis. This does not suit you. And for me, it's definitely not helping your mental health. But for me, it made me feel on days. Look, there are days where inexplicably for me, I get up, the sun is shining, everything in life is going well. But you know what? I don't feel good. And I, it is inexplicable. You know, it's not like there are days when I know I feel good. There are days when I know I feel bad. Some days it's inexplicable. And sometimes, some days I would get 20 times more done if I use cannabis on those days than if I didn't. And it's to know when to use it. Of course, if I had more information about it than uh, people buying it on the black market, that would help again. But I'll say it again. It's not obviously not a one size fits all. And I run an awful lot for my mental health. And I'm also, 
uh, very wary of saying, well, my I control my depression with mental health because there's people out there, not a chance we're going out for a run to help them. And it's kind of, it's belittling their position to say, this is the solution for them. It's the solution for me. My solution is to run loads, loads, to swim loads in freezing cold water all year round and to use cannabis. And I keep it together then, you know. Yeah. And, you, and do you say that you use cannabis before you run? Oh, I would. Yeah, I would. definitely. And people might find that, well, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have the ability to get up. Well, at this stage, I have a bit of experience. So I would smoke a particular type of cannabis. I would smoke a sativa. I would smoke one uh, that basically wouldn't leave me in finding Coronation Street interesting type mood. It should be a, it should be a. Um, I've got a bit of energy and I better use it up sort of mood. So, um, uh, and when you do go out, and a lot of people don't seem to realise but running anyway, even whether you've, you've used cannabis beforehand or not, a lot of people go, oh God, would you not be tired? I have 10 times more energy after I run um, uh, than I do beforehand. So, and I, you get rid of the, the kind of bit more, if you want to call them intense, but the bit more intense effects at the beginning. If you go out for a run, it just runs through your system and when you're when I'm back, for me, um, I I feel I feel at ease. You could say anything to me, and I wouldn't be that annoyed about it. You know. Mm. Well, it puts a bit of a lie to the myth that when people smoke, um, that they get all soporific and useless, and they just want to lie down and just stare out a window, and they can't. They're good for nothing for the rest of the day. But like, it's funny because one of my favorite comedians, um, in in America, I enjoy watching a program called Real Time with Bill Maher. And Bill Maher is a an, a, a hugely outspoken adv- advocate for marijuana um, and for marijuana legalization throughout the United States. Um, but he smokes every single day and he is a an extremely uh, busy uh, um, a t- live TV talk show host who smokes every yeah. day. So so it seems that like that that is that is a complete cliche, which is not true, that that. Uh, cannabis makes you soporific and dopey and stupid and um and yeah aggressive. it neither does that to you or nor does it make you uh, like that comedian it depends on your personality in the first place and for some people if they did what i did they quite literally would not get off the couch so for me it, it had, it's it's a drug at the end of the day is it, it depends on the person. It depends on the humor they're in on that day. It depends on the, the environment that they're in. It, it's an inanimate object until you put it in your mouth anyway, or you put it into your system and yeah. you interact with all that's going on with you, you know? Yeah. And how much do you smoke, Ming? Is it like, uh, I don't even know the, the way this works. Do you smoke like a joint in the morning and a joint in the evening? Well, or do you smoke at a certain time? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd smoke uh, in the evening before I'd go for a run. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd do it more so on uh, the weekends. And I'd probably smoke about, let me see, in, in old money, um, uh, I suppose about just over an eighth of, uh, of cannabis, an eighth of an ounce or about yeah. three or four grams a week. But I don't smoke it. Um, uh, I did smoke for a long time. I regret smoking Anything, whether it's smoking basil, tobacco, um, uh, cannabis, at the end of the day, burning something over your lungs is not a great idea. In the long term, it's less harmful than tobacco, of course. And there's been studies done, but I vaporize it at this stage. uh, I basically, which is you put it into into a machine, it blows hot air through it, takes the vapor out of it, you inhale it. 
And um, uh, maybe in the long term, I'd, I'd probably start uh, eating it rather than uh, inhaling it too, because really you only get one body. So you, you might as well, uh, <laughs> if, you're go- if, you're, if you're going to do it, you, you might as well do it in a way that harms you the least. Do you ever use cannabis to feel really good, to have a great time, to get loaded? Yeah, you, you, you do. And I, I'm doing that when I'm going for a run as well. I really enjoy mm. it. I listen to music. I listen to the radio and I listen to everything around me and I enjoy it. But of course you can. And this is the thing with regulation. You can make that decision to get loaded, as you say, to completely mm. escape and withdraw and find mm. Coronation Street amazing. Yeah. Mm. And to find um, uh, cornflakes like haute cuisine, like, you know, um, <laughs> but uh, you use you use more than you use a different type. You probably yeah. use an, an indica, which is as opposed to, to a sativa, which is more of a. I think the term some people use is couch lock, as in as if you're attached to the couch. Whereas you yeah. use a different thing for other things, like you know, in the same way as in the same way as you might use different alcohol, like you know, you might, people might drink cider on a more lively out, night out than um, uh, having nine or ten pints of Guinness going to going out dancing probably wouldn't be a good plan, like you know. So. No, exactly. Yeah, it's funny you should raise that because I remember years ago doing an experiment um, in my early twenties. Four of us went into this fella's house. And uh, we were on a Friday night, so we were going to get loaded no matter what, Ming. And uh, so two of us went to the bottom of the kitchen and we had a bottle of uh, tequila with us. And we sent the other two to the other end of the kitchen and they had a bottle of gin. And it was a big kitchen now. And uh, about an hour later, we uh, shouted over to the lads how they were doing. And uh, we were dancing on the tables, uh, dancing on the table on the tequila, right? And the lads were practically crying in each other's arms. Yeah. Um, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd consumed a bottle of gin between them and they had gone into a deep deep sort of uh, depressosville. Well, uh, under the current regime for uh, cannabis, if they had that regime for alcohol, you would know what you were drinking in advance. Mm. And uh, yeah. people who might be uh, maybe maybe not a good idea to be getting too depressed or if they're having a particularly bad time in their life, drinking yeah. a random label bottle definitely yeah. wouldn't wouldn't help. Ideally, you probably wouldn't, you shouldn't drink at all if you're feeling down. So, so, when I was, so when I was doing you on the Vincent Brown show with Mick Wallace, um, I mean, like that must have been a peculiar experience. Well, especially I don't know if you'd been if you were smoking and you saw some other fella on the TV and he's. Well, I'll be happy. honest with you. I sat down and uh, I think I was in. Um, I wasn't. No, I, I wasn't in Castlereagh at the time. I was in a friend of mine's house, and uh, we had just actually had a smoke, and then it came. <laughs> so it was perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> And for all the for all the kind of you say that my you know I I used the word Ming in my name to get elected it was a little bit of a prank, and you know you grow a long beard and you have a long you have long hair, um you do strike me as kind of a very contemplative and serious person, is there a Ming who sits on the couch with their friends just laughing at absolutely nothing while stoned? Yeah, of course, yeah, there there, there certainly is, but when you when you have three. Uh, daughters, two adults at this stage, um, oh. uh, is, uh, is, uh, it, it makes you obviously you have to think, you have to think about life very, very seriously because it's uh, right. Do they it, live it, back it's in a massive responsibility? Yeah, they do. For the first year and a half as an MEP, uh, I have an eight year old child as well. She was just born um, a few months after I got elected. So for the first year and a half, they were all over there with me. And uh, just while the baby, the deal is when we have a baby, I get up 
for the first couple of years after she has the baby because she's done an awful lot of damned hard, difficult work. So they all came over to Brussels and for a year and a half we were all there. And then I now, since then, I travel back and over. So they live in Ireland. My eldest is in college. My second eldest is contemplating what she's going to do. And my eight-year-old is um, uh, being an eight-year-old. So excellent, excellent. Just back, just to finish it off on the um, on the cannabis thing. Is it true that you sent two hundred um, joints to TDs and senators back in the day? And if you did, did any of them partake? And if so, did you did you hear about any of the um, the the reviews of said joints? Yeah, I think at the I think it was in uh, I'm trying to remember the exact year 2001. Mm-hmm. I organised an event called uh, National Legalised Cannabis Day to obviously highlight this issue. Um, I uh, ro- basically rolled 166 joints for every TD in Dalairn, one for every senator, and I wrote a letter, obviously explaining that this was National Legalised Cannabis Day. You are now in possession of a joint. You should bring this to your local guard station because you're breaking the law. I explained yeah. the law and then said that uh, I think you should change this law. I also sent a joint to uh, 200 journalists. Tom Dunn on air congratulated me and thanked me for sending it. Uh, Eamon Dunphy said, I'm not smoking any other sort of rubbish that gets sent to me. One politician left, and I'm not going to mention his name because fair do he got back. He left a message, he goes, you're some whore, man, he goes. We're all smoking them now in the office. But it, it had a very good effect. I was far more of a media whore than I am now. It led to doing about 70 interviews in the space of two days. And it showed me um, uh, the importance of getting attention for what you're campaigning for, you know, and, and how to do it. What's your opinion of the way Ireland is run? What's your opinion of the state Ireland is in? Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Um, You know, is it is it is it is it is it hopeless? Is it all right? Um, Is it a case of could do better? Um, I suppose it depends who you are, uh, whether it's good or bad. It depends whether you have money or not. It depends whether you have a house or not. And uh, for me, um, uh, I see uh, a particularly difficult and bad situation whereby the most fundamental thing, which is a place to live, is now seen as some sort of amazing luxury and um, uh, solutions to our homeless problem and our lack of houses are seen as so complex that apparently they can never be solved. And if you suggest they can be solved, you're a populist. You're now apparently a populist if you say that people should be able to afford a house. Uh, mm. That, for me, is a dire situation. Mm. And with uh, three children and having to deal with the health services and have to deal with mental health services throughout my life, I'd have mm. to say that's in a dire situation. And someone will flash the picture of a magazine and say we're the happiest people in the world. Mm. Economically, we're doing the best. We're the most food sovereign people on the planet. They can say it all they want. But if you cannot get a house or if you're talking and you're not insane saying, oh, I'm getting a 650,000 euro house and it's in the mid price range. Well, there's something wrong. That should not be the case. It's making life very, very, very difficult for people. And if you're in a situation where you've been led into an unregulated quagmire and you have mica in your house and you have pyrotite in your house or you have new things that they're discovering in, in the concrete. If you're having to deal with all of that 
and you are basically getting stonewalled by the government and they're not moving and they're not doing what you really need to so that you can have a basic existence, you have to say it's very messy here. We're really, really good at creating employment, but um, uh, so is a dog chasing its tail. It's always busy. <laughs> yeah. Has your political um, outlook evolved, changed, uh, or stayed the same over the last 20 years? Well, it's evolved. Um, uh, I've um, done most of my work in the, the agriculture and rural development areas since I became an MEP. And um, as someone who's a townie, um, uh, I don't see myself as a culture, even though I come from a small town in a small county with a small population like Roscommon. It's given me an appreciation for um, the money that farming brings in, that the common agricultural policy brings in to rural areas, whether you're a farmer or whether you're a mechanic or whether you're a carpenter or a hairdresser or a teacher there because there's kids there because of all of that um, uh, all of that activity. So from that point of view, I, I've changed to what is important to me has changed. And this is a big, important issue to me. And as I mentioned earlier, the, now the big issue with uh, biodiversity and with climate change and the big file that I'm working on at the moment, the nature restoration regulation and how we'll go about that. Um, politically, my priorities have changed and my ability to deal them and uh, deal with them and understand how those systems works has changed. And, and my ability to get results has improved as well. Are there any political figures in Ireland at any level that you admire? Yeah, there are. I'd, I'd admire our president. I admire uh, Michael D. Higgins because when I ran for election at first in 1997, he treated me with great respect and he was decent to me. Uh, a lot of, uh, of the other candidates were um, either condescending or a bit aloof. And I just found him to be really genuine. And I've experienced with him at, uh, as a constituency TD as well, where he helped out friends of mine. And he was just, he was good. Also in Galway as well, uh, Catherine Connolly, a very good time for her. And um, uh, the, um, the, the, they, they would be, I suppose, two big ones. Thomas Pringle as well. I think he's done a lot of work on uh, divestment of our, our pension funds into uh, oil and gas and all those mm. areas. And uh, yeah, there, those, there, there, there's quite a lot of uh, very uh, uh, good people in mm. uh, uh, working in the Oireachtas. In the, in the Senate, uh, Lynn Ruan uh, would, mm -hmm. uh, for me, is very, very uh, impressive. Uh, mm. Alice Mary Higgins. And uh, there's, there, there's, there's quite, it, it, it should give me hope. There's, uh, there's, there, there's a lot of potential out there if, uh, if they had the numbers to govern. Yeah. Um, this, here's a more nuanced question. I presume, like, you know, you don't think that people like Pascal Donoghue and Leo Varadkar are bad people per se. And if you do, if you don't think they're bad people per se, what's wrong with them? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know are they good people or are they bad people, but they're doing bad things. They're doing bad things. Uh, uh, they're basically, um, they have created a situation where uh, people cannot afford uh, the basics and they created uh, a situation where life is intolerable for an awful lot of people, um, except for those who think it isn't and they think everyone else, those people are just moaning. Maybe they are like that. There's one thing you could say for certain. Pascal Donoghue is a smart guy. He is 
highly intelligent by any standard, it would seem to be. Well, by most standards, anyway. And do you not think that if he was, um, like, let's say, malign, in his, that he would not at least be aware of that? Because surely he would be understanding. He is not stupid to know that what the things he that the things he is doing are bad if he is doing bad things. So I really need to get to the bottom of this. Is it that like, is are these people deluded? So are you are you are you are you saying that these people are deluded? Are that because I would have thought, for example, giving people the benefit of the doubt, right? You would say, right, I'm a politician. Yes, there's a certain amount of ego involved. Yes, there's a certain amount of drive involved and personal and narcissism involved. But I've always believed I can do something for the country. I want to help the country. So do you believe that these people don't want to help the country? And if so, if they don't want to help the country, are they totally deluded, mad or bad? Well, I would say uh, the best thing I could say about them, the best possible thing I could say about them is they think that this is as good as it can get. Mm. And as good as it can get means certain people do very well, mm. but a very, very significant amount of people will always have to struggle and anything else is delusional. Mm. So that's probably the best thing I could say about them. Uh, uh, they think this is as good as it gets. So such is the way of life, basically. They live in a world where their worldview is that there are winners and losers and that capitalism, unfortunately, has um, victims. Yeah, um, uh, but uh, I, I rent um, a two-bedroom uh, apartment in Brussels for €1,100 Euros, and I'd have to pay about €3,500 um, in Dublin for the same apartment. So um, I'm living in a place where um, politicians somehow, without using a magic wand, have managed to make it possible to live in the capital city in Europe. But um, they haven't in, uh, in uh, the capital city of uh, an island uh, of the West Atlantic. No, they certainly haven't. And, I, and, and your, your, your point there is unarguable. Um, I, I would point out probably, I'm trying to weigh up all sides. I would point out that, for example, rent and property prices in the United Kingdom are absolutely dreadful. And you will find the same in places like New York uh, and places like that in San Francisco. So it's not as if it's it's not as if it's 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 exclusive or, or to our to Irish. In also, it's not as if it's unsolvable because we can see models in uh, Berlin. We can see mm. um, uh, we can see uh, it, it's 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 not a particular model in Brussels. It's uh, you pay whatever uh, you, you, whatever you'll get it for, and that's what people can get it for. And um, uh, yeah, they have problems in New York. Um, uh, they have their own exclusive problems too, I'm sure. But uh, and they have their problems in the UK. But I wouldn't use UK, the UK as a, a, a as it's a particularly low bar now. To be quite honest, at this stage. Yeah, agreed. Ag agreed, definitely. Um, Ming, there's one other aspect to this podcast. Thank you for your time, by the way. And you played a blinder. There's one no, other aspect to this podcast that I, I, I don't know if you're aware of, but I have certain people listening into the podcast, and yes. uh, and they can ring in and they can ask you a question or tell you something nice themselves. You know. So um, I hope you don't mind, Ming. You know what I do for a living. So, yes. Uh, yeah. M Michael D Higgins is on the line. Say hello to him. Hi, Michael D. How are you doing? Yes, I'm absolutely delighted, Ming. I've been, myself and Sabine, or Sabina, or whatever she's calling herself these days, we've been listening in the auras to this podcast. And I must say, I was really, really, really taken with your kind words about me. Thank you, Ming. That's so kind of you. And you remember that I was so helpful and supportive. Is that right? 
I do indeed. And you're still very helpful and supportive. And it's good to have someone in the RS that knows how to walk it right up to the line and knows where the line is without having to ask an advisor. Yes, and one day both of us will visit Cuba together. And uh, and I must say, I still have that little thing you gave me. What is it, sativa or something? Is it, is it what's the name of it again, Ming? I, I don't think I ever sent anything to you, Michael D. What happened? Somebody said something because uh, Sabina and I had a little blast of it last night, and I'm telling you, Coronation Street never looked as good. Good, good. Yeah, last longer using that than drinking Guinness. It's wonderful. Brilliant. Uh, to be wrong by the president, Ming, that's fantastic. Um, Ray Darcy's on the line. Say hello to Ray. Hi, Ray. How are you doing? Um, the last time you invited me on your show, um, you insulted your listeners by uh, suggesting my answers were too complicated. I'd have a bit more confidence in your listeners and I might come on your show again. How are you, Ming? Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Well done. Well done. Well done. No, it's your listeners, your, the listeners to this podcast are highly intelligent, so I've understood everything you've said today. Well done. One thing is getting to me, Ming. Could you explain this? How can you smoke before going for a run? Um, uh, you use your, your mouth and your, your lungs. It's simple enough. Same, yeah. same technique as if you're not going for a run. So myself and Jenny uh, rolled up a fat one last night, a huge one, a big, huge fat one, and I went for a run. Total disaster, Ming. I rang straight down to McDonald's and I came back two stone overweight. What kind of plan is that, Ming? It's not a very good plan. But, um, it wouldn't be the first disaster, Ray. Um, Leo Varadkar's on the line. Say hello to Leo, Ming. Hi, Leo. How are you? Hi. Are you the tea shepherd the tarnished? Uh, it's hard to keep up. I'm rotating. Uh, so I'm, I'm presently rotating myself into the, 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 the position, uh, the main position. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, uh, how come that when I did uh, an interview with Hot Press and uh, I admitted to, I think, inhaling one puff of, uh, of hash or whatever it's called, I got into trouble for about five weeks, yet you're smoking your brains out every night and now taking over Europe. How does that work? I don't know, actually. It's a, it's a good question. I'll have to think about that for a bit longer. It's, uh, as usual, a deep question from you, uh, Leo. You, you think about things so much. Yeah, thanks. Are you ever uh, thinking about coming back uh, to Irish politics? Um, uh, most likely not. I'll wait for you to retire first, Leo. <laughs> uh, that's not going to happen. Thanks for your call. Thanks, Leo. That's brilliant. Um, and David Norris is on the line as well. Hi, David. How are you? Ming, how wonderful to talk to you and great to hear your voice raging across Europe. I remember you gave me, I was one of the senators that you sent one of those lovely pieces of work to in 2001. Do you remember when you did that? I do, yeah. You described it as being of the consistency of dried cabbage. Absolutely, but it made James Joyce read totally different. Now I realise James Joyce must have been on crack. It's the only way he could have written that. He had to have been on crack, Ming. What do you reckon? You know, it might, might have been a challenge at the time, but uh, maybe maybe opium. Ming, I have to say, like so many people have, have, have made the effort to call into you today. So so you're obviously still a person of some renown in 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 your uh, in, in your constituency. Do you is there any piece of any film that you like about stoners or marijuana? Um, um, because my favorite would probably be two things that I would say. Obviously, the Big Lebowski, and um, what's the one where Jack Nicholson, Easy Rider. There you go. That's the very one I was going to say. Easy Rider. Um, they were flying in formation, man. Yeah, and the birds. Absolutely fantastic film. 
Yeah. And Lebowski, would you be into the big Lebowski at all? Yeah, it's good. Tastes very good, actually. Yeah. Excellent. I enjoyed it. Excellent. Ming, listen, um, I want to thank you for your candor on today's podcast and also mostly for taking the time um, to speak to me today. Thank you so much. All right. My pleasure, Mario. So that's it for today's episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. My big thanks to Ming Flanagan uh, for joining me. I know he's a very busy man in Brussels. And thanks for that great conversation. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, of course, and thanks to all of you who are getting in touch with me on mariorosenstock at gmail.com. From all over the world, um, it seems we have listeners all over the place. And thank you very much. Tell one other person, if you can, about this podcast. It's mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I read them all and I get back to most of them. Um, until next time, next week, same time, same place. Take it easy. Take it easy.